Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is Season 5, Episode 45. I am Rick, author of the just-released Jesus Centered Daily, which, as it turns out, makes a great last-minute Christmas gift or even a better New Year's Day gift. Is that a thing, even? Well, of course, if you want to read a daily devotional from start to finish, you got to start in January. I gave away I gave away one of my Jesus Center dailies to a friend of mine, and uh, I expected that she was going to start on the date whenever she started reading it. But she actually went to the start of the year and started reading January. Some sometimes you just can't tolerate not starting a book from the beginning, right? But but in any case, um, I just encourage you and invite you to check out the Jesus Center daily and consider it um, for a gift for a friend, or especially for that after Christmas kind of gift for someone who uh, wants to start a new habit in their life, a new pattern, a new a new way of urging their way towards uh, a more intimate relationship with Jesus. Maybe you'd like the same thing. Um, it's just a little companion to help rivet your attention on your relationship with Jesus and his beauty and wonder every day. So, if you'd like to check it out, just go to the website I built my own self called JesusCenterDaily.com. Um, you can get a free sampler there and watch a little intro video or order the book. Again, it's JesusCenterDaily.com. I always say, if you already have a copy, please repost a review on Amazon. That helps the book and helps me. So I'd love it if you did that. This is the third episode in a new series called Kingdom Come. So the, the question we're posing here is, well, what did Jesus really come to do? What was his mission? You know, we know uh, growing up in the church that we've always translated that sort of question into uh, a redemptive purpose, meaning that uh, our rescue is really his mission. And that's true. Um, you know, I've, I've mentioned before that when we get married, we move from being single to being a married couple. And when we commit ourselves to Jesus, we move from this current reality of separation from God to a new and future reality of, of relational connection, intimacy, marriage. And that means that our situation changes. Um, so that is the passion of God, a restoration of our relationship. But the mission of God has to do with planting the culture of the Trinity in this dark, broken culture. So his, his real mission is to come, he's come to bring the kingdom of God a culture that the Trinity lives within and has created to bring that culture into our reality so that we live in that culture instead of the broken culture of this world. So today we're going to explore as part of this series on the kingdom of God, the point of your story, <clears throat> the point of your story. So part of this comes from just thinking about how Jesus brought the kingdom of God into the, into the midst of our broken world. Well, we often think of how he brought it into the world in terms of propositional truths. Like he, he was a teacher bringing propositional truths to us, but actually he was a teacher 
but he was, he was a storytelling teacher. Jesus loved to tell stories and to live stories, to do things that others would write down as stories we're all familiar with now. Jesus is and was a storyteller. So I thought it would be interesting for us to explore storytelling and explore not only um, how Jesus is and was a storyteller, but also because we're created in his image, how we are storytellers and also how to interpret the storytelling he is, he is telling in our own lives. Um, that a big part of the kingdom of God is entering into the story that Jesus is telling. And so that's what we're going to explore. So I thought it'd be interesting since we're right before Christmas here to start off by listening to a classic Christmas story. So I invite you, if you're not driving, just close your eyes, slow your breathing down, and listen to Clement Moore's uh, famous story, Twas the Night Before Christmas. Now, as we get set to listen to this, I want you to be thinking about just three little filters as you listen. Um, stories, all good stories, have a setup, they have a plot twist, and they have a takeaway. A setup, a plot twist, and a takeaway. Uh, maybe you've heard all good stories have a beginning, middle, and end. I think this is a better way to think about a good story. Every story has a setup, meaning what, what are the assumptions? What's the normal uh, landscape of the people in the story before the plot twist comes? What are their normal expectations, their values, their culture, their expectations? Um, <clears throat> what, what is all that normalcy? What is the setup to the story? What do we know about the people and the situation um, as the story begins? What do we know about all that stuff? And then next comes the plot twist. And sometimes there's obviously more than one plot twist, but next comes a twist to those expectations. It's not what we expect. And last, by the end of the story, we have the takeaway. What is the point of the story? What, what message did the storyteller hope that the, 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 that the person experiencing the story would take away from it? And we think of message as a propositional truth again, but maybe, maybe the message is much more profound. Maybe the takeaway is transformation, personal transformation. But there's always a takeaway at the end of the story. So as I read this, I want you to think about what is the setup to the story? What, what do you know about the normal uh, expectations and the normal uh, situation the characters in the story are, are living in? before the plot twist comes, then think about, well, what's the, what's the plot twist in this story? And there might be more than one. And then what's the takeaway of the story? So here we go. Twas the Night Before Christmas by Clement Moore. If you're not driving, just close your eyes, breathe slowly and listen. Twas the night before Christmas, when all through the house, not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. The stockings were hung by the chimney with care in hopes that St. Nicholas soon would be there. The children were nestled all snug in their beds while visions of sugar plums danced in their heads. And mama and her kerchief and I in my cap had just settled our brains for a long winter's nap. When out on the roof there arose such a clatter, I sprang from my bed to see what was the matter. Away to the window I flew like a flash, tore open the shutter and threw up the sash. While the moon on the breast of the new fallen snow gave the luster of midday to objects below. When what to my wondering eyes should appear, but a miniature sleigh and eight tiny reindeer 
With a little old driver so lively and quick, I knew in a moment it must be St. Nick. More rapid than eagles, his coursers they came. And he whistled and shouted and called them by name. Now Dancer, now Dasher, now Dancer, now Prancer and Vixen, on Comet, on Cupid, on Donner and Blitzen. To the top of the porch, to the top of the wall, now dash away, dash away, dash away all. Did you like my Santa voice there? As dry leaves that before the wild hurricane fly, when they meet with an obstacle, mount to the sky. So up to the housetop, the coursers they flew, with a sleigh full of toys in St. Nicholas too. And then, in a twinkling, I heard on the roof, the prancing and pawing of each little hoof. As I drew in my head and was turning around, down the chimney, St. Nicholas came with a bound. He was dressed all in fur from his head to his foot, and his clothes were all tarnished with ashes and soot. A bundle of toys he had flung on his back, and he looked like a peddler just opening his pack. His eyes, how they twinkled, his dimples, how merry. His cheeks were like roses. His nose was like a cherry. His droll little mouth was drawn up like a bow, and the beard on his chin was as wide as the snow. The stump of a pipe he held tight in his teeth, and the smoke had encircled his head like a wreath. He had a broad face and a little round belly that shook when he laughed like a bowl full of jelly. He was chubby and plump, a right jolly old elf, and I laughed when I saw him in spite of myself. A wink of his eye and a twist of his head soon gave me to know I had nothing to dread. He spoke not a word, but went straight to his work and filled all the stockings, then turned with a jerk and laying his finger aside of his nose and giving a nod up the chimney he rose. He sprang to his sleigh, to his team he gave a whistle and away they all flew like the down of a thistle. But I heard him exclaim ere he drove out of sight, happy Christmas to all and to all a good night. Well, there you have it. Clement Moore's Twas the Night Twas the Night Before Christmas. With only a few minor screw-ups along the way. So I asked you to think about the setup, the plot twist, and the takeaway. And uh, I thought it'd be interesting just to just to uh, brainstorm off the tops of our heads here. So the setup, well, we know that the stockings were hung by the chimney, meaning in this story, the people were getting ready for something big, where they were getting ready for Christmas Day. The stockings were already hung out. They had anticipated this big day. In fact, as the story begins, it's, it's chock full with anticipation. It's the night before the big day. And so we know that it's a charged atmosphere because the house is full of anticipation. But there's maybe also a sense that, yeah, yeah, we hung up the stockings, but we're not really expecting anything fantastical to happen here. We're just going through the motions of Christmas, right? Um, we're not really expecting something otherworldly to break into our natural world. It's just another Christmas Eve. We don't ever really think we'll actually encounter Santa Claus. There's the setup. And the plot twist is, well, the man in the story actually sees St. Nicholas. He actually sees the person himself. And there's a full description of everything that the man sees from the sled to the reindeer, to the sounds and the smells and the, and the looks. The, the plot twist is that it's chock full with reality. The number of details that are listed here makes the reader believe that the man in the story has actually had an encounter with St. Nicholas. 
And if you think about the macro plot twist here, it's disruptive. There's a big alarming thing that happens in the middle of the night. And typically the big alarming thing happens in the middle of the night. It's scary. You're on high alert. There was a time when um, uh, about a year ago or so, a year or two ago, <clears throat> my wife and I were going to bed. It was late. It was 1030 or 11. And we heard something, a noise on our rooftop, kind of a, a heavy noise on our rooftop. And we couldn't fit. We had never heard this noise before. And we, we couldn't figure out what was going on in our, our uh, bedroom has two windows that point out to the backyard, but it was dark and our shades were drawn. And so all we heard is all of this noise and commotion happening on our rooftop. And then, and then uh, at the end of that noise and commotion, something large and heavy crashed into the side of our house, like boom, crashed into the side of our house. And uh, that, that experience at night, 10, 30 or 11 o'clock just produced fear especially for my wife. <laughs> she freaked out. My, my younger daughter, high schooler, was in bed already. And my wife came running down the hallway to, to her room because she, my wife believed someone was trying to break into our house. And she immediately ran down the hallway to protect my younger daughter and, and told her in a uh, sort of a frightened way that there might be somebody trying to break into our house. And of course, my younger daughter is immediately awake then. And we could not figure out what was going on. So I went outside with a flashlight to try to see what was happening out there. And I couldn't find anything. Meanwhile, my wife called the police. So the police showed up. And by the time they showed up, we had figured out that it, what most likely had happened is some, well, overweight raccoons had had a big wrestling match on our roof. And then somehow, some way, in their wrestling match or chasing each other, they had smashed into the side of our house and made a huge ruckus. So imagine telling that to the three police officers on your porch. So the, the idea though here is that when there's a disruption in the night, it's a big alarming thing and uh, your senses are heightened. And that's the situation in this story. Maybe the last little plot twist is Santa's wink. And that means that, that the man is not just observing St. Nicholas. Now they've had a personal connection. Now this has gone from a fantastical dream to something that actually is happening because they have a personal connection. So what's the takeaway in this story? Well, you know, we, we thought nothing was going to happen. It was going to be an average Christmas Eve, stockings hung, uh, no big disruption in the night. But instead, a huge disruption happens. And the wink, that wink means this disruption has led to an actual real relational encounter with the fantastical. And maybe the takeaway then is, you know, in, conventionally, we all need to believe the things that we're skeptical about, the, the, uh, the assumptions we have that the fantastical will never break into our life. Well, maybe we need to invite that and, and open our hands to it. I think maybe the, the second tech takeaway is that wonder is a good thing. I always remember that C.S. Lewis said in retrospect that his love for fairy stories created, uh, sort of baptized his imagination. That's how he described it. it his love for fairy stories and, those, and, and the things that, the fantastical things that happened in those fairy stories baptized his imagination and prepared him to experience wonder so that when he met Jesus, he could see Jesus through the lens of wonder as well. And it helped him to understand the heart of Jesus better. 
I've never forgotten that. And I, I think all experiences of wonder are a preparation for us to experience the beauty and wonder of Jesus. So there's the uh, setup, the plot twist, and the takeaway from a common Christmas story. So what is the story Jesus is telling? Because whatever that story is, it also has a setup, a plot twist, and a takeaway. And what are the stories that he's telling in our life? Because it has those same three things in it as well. And how can we grow as storytellers, as people that not are not primarily about propositional truths, but know how to tell the story in such a way that people are gripped by it? Not because we're telling a fiction, but because we're painting a picture of the story that Jesus is telling in our lives and is telling in everyone's life in one way or another. This whole aspect of what it means to tell our own stories and to, and to appreciate the storytelling of both Jesus and others in our life. Um, I, I tried a little experiment. I asked some friends to, to try this little experiment where we would create our own story, but do it in a, in a, uh, well, an unusual way. So I gave, I, I broke them into pairs. These uh, uh, six friends of mine broke them into teams of two. And I gave each team of two uh, either the setup, the plot twist, or the takeaway. And then I gave them a story starter. So it's just kind of the opening of a story that isn't finished. And I said, one, one pair is supposed to then create what the setup is in that story. And then the next pair needed to create a plot twist without knowing what the previous group had done to set up the story. And then the last group needed to create the takeaway or the end of the story without knowing the plot twist or the setup to it. And so they were each creating their portion of the story in isolation. And then we were going to put them all together and see what sort of story we had. So here is the story starter I gave them. And then I'll, and then I'll tell you how this turned out, what the story that produced out of this was. So here's the story starter. It started out just like any other day. I finished the last soggy pieces of cereal from my bowl full of milk. I always pour too much. But as I grabbed my coat and ran out the door, I couldn't believe my eyes. Let me read that one more time. This is the start of the story starter. It started out just like any other day. I finished the last soggy pieces of cereal from my bowl full of milk. I always pour too much. But as I grabbed my coat and ran out the door, I couldn't believe my eyes. All right, that was the starter. And then I set my uh, teams off to go create their portion of the story. And here's what came out of those groups. Remember, I asked the first group to come up with the setup. So here is the setup to the story. I'm late because I'm always late. I'm jamming down my breakfast and totally focused on my lateness. I think my family is used to this sort of disconnected feeling they get from me in the morning. My focus is somehow far away from the present reality and that's probably what my, why my whole family was sure they could get away with this. So there's the setup they came up with. The next group came up with a plot twist, again, not knowing what the setup was. Here is the plot twist they came up with. There in my front yard among the snow stood a donkey eating a bunch of yellow hay. He looked up at me, and as he did, three women appeared kneeling in the snow, bearing what looked like clay jars. 
Before long, my whole yard was like a zoo. Farm animals of all kinds came and joined the donkey. People were walking down the street in strange attire, carrying staffs and approaching, singing. They all gathered in my yard before me. They seemed to be waiting for something, but what they were looking for, I couldn't say. So there's the plot twist. And then the last group created the takeaway, not knowing anything that had happened before. And here was their takeaway. Despite these fantastical events, everything worked out in the end. So I said, Merry Christmas to all. Have a good day. <laughs> so there you have the story in parts, especially when you don't have one narrator and you have no concept of the story the storyteller is really trying to tell here. It's more random. And therefore, you get a random takeaway from the story. If you don't have someone telling the story on a thread, then then the story doesn't really make sense in its transitions. Or we put together, because we hate dissonance, we put together meaning in the story. But it's important to understand uh, what sort of story the storyteller's telling and to find the thread of that story through that one storyteller. Otherwise you get a jumbled sort of mess like this story was. And thank God we have one storyteller in our lives, who's telling a very good story. It's not jumbled. So what would make this disconnected story a better story? What, what If you were going to, to tell this story better, what would you have to do? Well, you'd want to embellish it more, imagine what's going on in the story, and follow that thread all the way through. And in this case, the setup had an emotional thread that involved the, the uh, narrator's family, but that was never carried through the rest of the story. This idea that his family somehow understood this is the way things work with him in the morning and he was oblivious and therefore they thought they could pull something off that he would never see coming. But that thread never follows through the rest of the story. And so we're left frustrated as the reader of the story or the experience of the story because we're expecting the thread to be carried through if it's set up that way and it just isn't. So. That, and we also, in the takeaway, it's um, frustratingly vague, isn't it? Despite these fantastical events, everything worked out in the end. That's just too vague. It's not very satisfying. It's not like eating a good meal. So maybe if we were going to improve this story, the family could have organized a live nativity in the narrator's front yard to help him to slow down and realize that the wonder of this season can break into the nose to the grindstone reality of, of the narrator of the story. Maybe they organized this to capture his attention because his attention is so distracted every morning. Maybe they knew they could pull this off because he was so distracted. And maybe this was their way of gifting him with the lightning bolt of the fantastical into his everyday life. Maybe they were hoping to upset his apple cart and help him to re refocus on, on what was most important to him and the story that mattered the most during this time. In fact, what we want in that takeaway is some thread of redemption because we all long for redemptive stories. So uh, if you wanted to fix that story, you'd have to have a narrator, a storyteller who was helping us to see that story 
the way it was intended. And that that storyteller would carry through the threads and would be heading toward a redemptive outcome in their story, no matter what. So I thought it'd be interesting for us to take a, a random encounter with Jesus and use these th same three lenses, the, the setup to the story, the plot twist in the story, and the takeaway to the story, and just discover what kind of story he's trying to tell by looking at it through that lens. And I just I just chose sort of a random encounter Jesus had. Now, um, we're going to read about this encounter, and you're going to think, well, that's not a story Jesus told. Well, yes, it is. Every encounter Jesus had was another chapter in the story he was trying to tell. And if we consider it that way, that Jesus' real experiences with real people is him storytelling in the moment with the people that were experiencing that story. And now us, because somebody recorded this story, now we get to experience it vicariously as well. Think of it in those terms. So as I read this story, I want you to be thinking again about the setup, the plot twist, and the takeaway in this story. So this is called The True Family of Jesus. It's a short story from Matthew 12, verses 46 through 50. So if you're not driving and you want to crack open your Jesus-centered Bible to Matthew 12, 46 through 50, do that. By the way, the Jesus-centered Bible, um, in the category of fantastic last-minute Christmas gifts and fantastic New Year's uh, uh, gifts as well, you can't do better than the Jesus-centered Bible. It's a unique uh, Bible in that it has eight or ten special features that uh, the team that I led created to help the reader experience Jesus, no matter where you are in the Bible, and to experience Jesus in an upending way, to sort of surround you with Jesus, no matter where you are in scripture. That's what the Jesus Center Bible is. It has features that aren't in any other Bible on the face of the earth. So I encourage you to, if you don't already have a Jesus Center Bible, please get one. I think you'll love it. If you like this podcast, you'll love this Bible. Um, and if you know someone who maybe has never really established a regular pattern of marinating in the Word of God, the Jesus Center Bible may help them do that. Uh, that I've heard, you know, scores and scores of sto stories from people who've told me that it has really fueled and magnified their experience of reading the Bible. So I'll put a link on our podcast episode page to the Jesus-Centered Bible as well. And again, you're going to paying ridiculous attention to Jesus.com and you're going to find season five, episode 45, and you'll find a link to the Jesus-Centered Bible there. So giving you enough time to find Matthew 12. Now, if you're not driving, this is verses 46 through 50. Here we go. As Jesus was speaking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. Someone told Jesus, your mother and your brothers are standing outside and they want to speak to you. Jesus asked, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? And then he pointed to his disciples and said, look, these are my mother and brothers. Anyone who does the will of my father in heaven is my mother and brother and sister. There you have it. A, a lightning bolt of a little story about Jesus. I'm just going to go back to the, the last part of this. Jesus asks, when he finds out his mother and his brothers are outside waiting for him, he asks, who's my mother? Who are my brothers? And he points to his disciples and he says, look, 
these are my mother and brothers. Really, anyone who does the will of my Father in heaven is my family, is my brother and sister and mother. So, again, the questions are, what's the setup to the story? What assumptions do his listeners bring to the table in this story? So just imagine you're not just listening to the story, you're in the story. You're one of those who sees and hears this happening right in front of you. You're in a crowded room. Jesus is teaching. There's no more room for anyone to get in. And someone comes up to him rather urgently and whispers to him, hey, your mother and your brothers are waiting for you outside. They want to talk to you. And what assumptions would you consider at the start of the setup of this story? What, what could you predict that people were um, assuming in, in the, this part of the story? So, of course, part of the setup here was that, well, blood family comes first. And it's not just in ancient Israel that that was true. It's true today, isn't it? That we generally say that our blood family comes first. That's an unquestioned reality. And of course, the rabbi who's up there teaching would be the chief practitioner of that unquestioned reality. Of course, he would honor his own blood family first before anyone else. Of course, if his mother and brothers wanted to get into the room or speak to him, Jesus, as the rabbi, would give way to that. Of course, he would do that. If his mother and his brothers wanted to speak with him, of course, he'd be obligated to do that because that's what you do in that culture. And for the mother and the brothers standing outside, their assumption is, well, you're supposed to speak with us. If we ask for you because we're your blood family, of course, you're going to um, prioritize us over the people who are not blood related to you in that room. We have sort of the assumption of privilege here um, because that's, that's what's expected. That's what's normal in, in our culture. And it's some, to some extent normal today in our culture. So what then is the plot twist in this story? Well, Jesus is essentially reconfiguring, reshifting their perspective about family in this story. You might say that in this story, in the setup, people believe in a kind of a default fundamental way that that man, Jesus, has an obligation to his blood family. And, and whatever, um, whatever choices he has, that choice is prioritized at the top of the list. Um, you're, but the plot twist is that Jesus communicates to them in an upending way that his real obligation, his real focus, his real attention, his real passion, um, his real priority is a much broader family than just his blood family. It's the family that's sitting right in front of him, listening to him. He is reorienting in a, in a very disorienting way what is commonly accepted in a default setting, uh, what is commonly accepted in a default way in his cultural setting. He's shifting their perspective about family. He's recasting what the Trinity thinks about family in this moment. And so the takeaway means that here's a few, here's a few interesting takeaways, I think, from the story. If Jesus is going to prioritize what his father has told him he's come to do, if Jesus is going to prioritize the kingdom of God, the culture of the kingdom of God, that is going to have consequences. And some of the consequences people will never see coming, like his mother and his brothers. 
They never see this coming. They have, they, of course, Jesus is not neglecting his family. He's just trying to make a point that my blood family doesn't trump everything else in my life. And so if he's going to plant that kind of kingdom of God culture here, it's going to produce consequences. And the consequences in this case are disappointing and, dis and confusing his mother and his brothers, because they're not going to understand, well, what? <laughs> what? He, he, he's not coming out to talk to us? He's not going to find place for us inside? What? That's the consequence of planting this kingdom of God truth in the crowd that has uh, packed their way into this house. Jesus is saying that he's going to make a choice to follow the will of his father and to extend the culture of the kingdom of God right there, right then. And the consequences are disruptive, to say the least. He is doing something that is culturally inappropriate <laughs> to the nth degree. And what he's, what's he re what he's really doing is saying that anyone who does my will, anyone who loves me and is passionate for me, and therefore wants to do what I've asked them to do, wants to live out my priorities and my values, wants to extend the kingdom of God that I've come to bring into the world, well, those people become the focus of my attention. Not, not just because of the way society, the culture orients me towards my obligations or my responsibilities or my priorities. Actually, I'm shifting my priority to those who will simply carry out my will because they are the ones who are emptying themselves of their own agenda and picking up my agenda. And the reason they're doing that is not because they're supposed to, but because they have become passionately committed to me. Um, their passion for me means that they want to fulfill my will. Just in the same way when you feel passionately for a friend or a spouse, you want to not only discover what, what their um, intentions in life are, what they hope for, what their dreams are, what their will is. You want to discover that and then do your darndest to carry it out in your life, to extend that because you love that person. And that's what Jesus is saying. The shift here is from obligation, cultural obligation, to a focus on those who have become passionately attached to him. And because they're passionately attached to him, they are living out his will. Really, that this is all about what our calling is in life. And, and the calling to come into relationship with Jesus, he says this in so many different ways in the Gospels. When we are called into that kind of relationship, that relationship trumps everything else without discounting the relationships that used to be at the top of the pyramid. We're not discounting them. We're just simply saying, I have a deeper obedience in my life, a deeper desire to follow the will of God than any other desire in my life. Uh, when my wife and I were uh, early married and then had a young family, uh, during that time in our life, uh, we, like many couples at that time, uh, got a lot of parenting help and marriage help from the organization Focus on the Family. Uh, we got their newsletter. We listened to their program on the radio. This is before Focus on the Family became sort of more political in nature. Back then, it was really just uh, 
simply focused on helping marriages and families. That's it. And a lot of people our age and from that era um, got a lot of good from that organization and trying to help. Well, what does it look like to be married and, and to, to nurture that relationship? And what does it look like to be a parent and to, and to uh, raise up a child in the way they should go, as the scripture says? They had a lot of help from Focus on the Family, but that organization's focus was really on blood families, um, DNA families. When, that, when it says focus on the family, it meant focus on your DNA family. And actually, as my wife and I got older and closer to Jesus, we realized that Jesus actually recast that focus, that actually his focus on the family was much broader than the blood family, your DNA family. In fact, you could say that in this moment, Jesus is saying, my ties to this adopted family, this, this grafted in family that's around me, go at, at least as deep as my blood family. There's a different kind of blood family. Hmm, let that sit for a second. Jesus spills his blood so that we can become blood family with him. And therefore, when we are grafted into the vine, when we're that rebellious shoot grafted into the vine, we now share in the very DNA of Jesus, the DNA of the Trinity. When he says, you have become a new creature, you are born again, this is what he means, that now our DNA becomes blood with him. And that act of commitment, passionate commitment, um, grafts us in to his blood family and, and it extends the boundaries of family. So when we say focus on the family, that could mean anyone, anyone, blood-related or not, who shares that same communion, the body of Christ. We had our last uh, gathering of, of young people in our backyard, socially distanced, wearing masks and, and everything. We had our last gathering with them on a particularly warm day, so we decided to give it a shot and do this outside one more time. And we hadn't seen them for a few weeks because in our area in Colorado, we were at one of the highest risk ratings, and therefore you're not supposed to gather with people outside of your family. Um, but we could do that outside, socially distanced, wearing masks. So we hadn't seen them for a few weeks. Uh, we picked this warm day to do it. And I'm looking out on the sea of faces in front of me. And what my wife and I said to them was, you are our family. And we weren't just speaking metaphorically or hyperbolically. We were telling the truth. They are our family. So there's, I think, the takeaway from the plot twist that has upending power because of the setup of that story. Um, and and uh, what's important here, I think, is to not just think about this story in terms of the setup, the plot twist, and the takeaway, but to also think about, well, what do we know for sure about the author of this story? And what we know for sure about the author of this story is he has redemptive intent. He wants to invite us into something that finally feels safe for us. The story he is telling in our life is a story of an, being invited into a family that we had no business being invited into in the first place. But because of grace, we get the invitation to 
not just visit, but to be a permanent member of this family and not just be uh, an invited guest, but somehow, some way, fantastically, we get invited into a blood relationship in this family. We are not just family in name, we are family indeed in this relationship. And what do we know about the author of that story? We know that that author loves us and wants to be with us and share everything that a close family shares. That's what we know, that he is passionate about us and wants to extend the boundaries of family to us. So what about the point of your story? What is the story Jesus is telling in your life? What is the setup to your story? What's the beginnings of your story, your family of origin? What, what was set up for you in your family of origin? And then when did the plot twists come? And what were those plot twists? I have so many plot twists in my story. When I think back to my beginnings and my family of origin and what I was set up to be and what was normal for me, um, over the course of time, I've sort of become a black sheep in my family. Not, not that I'm mistreated in any way or anything else, but I'm just different. And my, my story took a turn. And it's because of the plot twists in my story that it took a turn. And those plot twists I never saw coming. They were disorienting. They were upending. They were wondrous, amazing, painful, disruptive, all the things that a plot twist does. So what are the plot twists in your story? And then what's, what's the takeaway so far in your story? Of course, we haven't come to the end of our story but we see the threads. What are some of the takeaways of the story? Um, what's the meaning of your story? What's the redemptive intent threaded through your story, no matter at what stage you're at in that story? So far, what are the redemptive threads in your story? And what do you know about the author who's been planting those redemptive threads in your story? What do you know about this author? Well, if we, if we pay attention to the author Jesus, who is storytelling this story of his mother and his brothers and his true family, and we see the heart behind that story, then we know that that, that, that same heart is telling a story in our life, and he has redemptive intent, and he is already planting redemptive threads that he intends to follow up on. Those things that were a part of the setup in your story, those threads, he's going to do something about those threads. They're not just going to be disconnected from the narrative. He will make ties to those threads as your story continues. So during this Christmas week, as you think about and reflect with your family, think back to your, story, your own story and think of it through these three lenses. What has been the setup in your story? What have been the plot twists? And what are some of the takeaways so far? As you have drawn near to Jesus, what are some of the redemptive takeaways in that story? Let's just close off here with a story that the, the angels told to the shepherds in Luke chapter 2. And let's think of this story through those same three filters, the setup, 
the plot twist, and the takeaways. This is the story of the shepherds and the angels from Luke 2. Let's close with this. That night, there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them, and they were terrified. But the angel reassured them, don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. And you will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth, lying in a manger. Suddenly, the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to those whom, with whom God is pleased. And when the angels had returned to heaven, the shepherds said to each other, let's go to, let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. And they hurried to the village and found Mary and Joseph. And there was the baby lying in the manger. And after seeing him, the shepherds told everyone what had happened and what the angel had said to them about this child. And all who heard the shepherd's story were astonished. But Mary kept all of these things in her heart and thought about them often. The shepherds, well, they went back to their flocks glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen. It was just as the angel had told them. What's the setup? What's the plot twist? What's the takeaway? I encourage you to read this story from Luke 2 sometime this week and ask yourself those three questions as you consider the story. All right, gang, I hope you have a wonderful and close and intimate time with both your family and with Jesus during this hu the hustle bustle of this week. Thanks for listening. Uh, by, the, by the way, you can go to painridiculousattentiontojesus.com and look for Season 5, Episode 45 for links to the things that we talked about today. And if um, you haven't already subscribed to this podcast on Google Play or iTunes, please do to make sure you don't ever miss an episode. This, again, is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. It's a podcast from rickborns.com. We'll see you again soon.